Good day, everyone, and welcome to New Matter, the SLAS podcast, where we interview life science luminaries. I'm your host, SLAS Scientific Director Marshall Brennan, and today we have Cece Chen with us. Cece is a senior research scientist at Caltech studying the specificity of drug response in heterogeneous immune cell populations. Cece was granted SLAS's 2021 Innovation Award for her research on the subject, and so we are really happy to have her with us. Welcome, Cece. Hi, Marshall. So glad to be here. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. However, I do have to engage in SLAS tradition and ask you to describe your day-to-day work in 10 words or fewer. Okay, so I uh, deconstruct and reconstruct multicellular populations for immunotherapy and regenerative medicine. That was good. Were you prepped for this? You know, I did, I was. <laughs> okay, okay. All right, that was good though. Okay, so that's our the elevator pitch. Now with a little bit more verbosity, talk us through your research. Clearly your uh, research program made an impression on the judges. And so give us a lowdown on what you've done and where you think that's going. So... You know, I'm really guided by this insight that, uh, you know, when we treat our own bodies, what we're really doing is treating the populations of cells within our tissues. And so, you know, the guiding insight behind our work is that, you know, what we want to do is deliver therapeutics or entities that can reshape that entire population. And so what I mean by that is that like, I think we have to move on from this idea of seeing a single molecule or a single cell as the target of a drug, but that we have to change the way that the entire population of cells work together. And so we do this by applying single cell measurements on complex tissues and understanding how they respond to therapies. And so the idea is that the population itself is the fundamental unit of therapeutic interests. What we have done, so I'm the director of a resource center at Caltech called the Single Cell Profiling and Engineering Center. And what we've done over the past few years is build up technologies that allow us to scale single cell measurements. So we can measure how populations respond to hundreds of perturbations in, in one shot and also be able to analyze that data so we can quickly extract insights about how the entire population is responding. All the way from the whole population level, you know, we have ways of statistically ranking how the entire population changes and which populations change a lot, which populations change very little, um, all the way down to what's exactly happening functionally at each cell type, um, how the signaling networks are being rewired, and what's happening down to the level of individual genes. That's really fascinating because it, it's such a, an elegant approach to deriving so much information. And like what's really excellent about it from my perspective, we talked a lot on the show recently about you know, how do we measure single cells and how do we get all this rich information? And what's always curious to me is that you know, we collect information on a single cell, and like you said, that, but then we treat, like you said, the whole population of cells that make us up and that be able to bridge that connection is really important. And so I'm so glad that you've gotten the results that you have. What do you think is the long-term uh, application of this? What are you hoping to, uh, to do with these results in the future? You know, I think there's three sort of major areas that, that we're really interested in. So like I said, this platform allows us to study the impact of any therapeutic um, on the entire population. We can go at it from a somewhat target agnostic approach so one thing that this allows us to do is 
start to study new kinds of molecular entities. This could be, you know, um, small molecules that have been synthesized by people around Caltech, or it could be uh, natural products that have not um, really been properly characterized before and really get a whole population level view of how it might impact the immune system as it's attacking, for example, cancer cells in a tumor organoid. And so I think that's really exciting that we can start targeting this platform towards new entities. I also am really interested in the other thing that we're doing is we're starting to add these drugs and signals in combination to understand what contexts best potentiate an immune response. Mm -hmm. And so one thing I didn't have a huge amount of time to talk about in my talk was that we see some really interesting context-specific impacts to even these canonical drugs. We found, for instance, that this group of NSAIDs causes the macrophages to selectively die off. And it also included a drug, which is an artificial sweetener that's a natural product derived from orange peel. So we can discover these new things that only happen when the system is all together and not in isolation. And I think that's really exciting. No, that's fantastic. I mean, it's sort of it's sort of reminiscent of uh, you know when people start recognizing even just things like the protein protein interactions are more important than expected. And so now it's like when we start thinking about all of those big interactions on the cellular level, how many more insights are we going to get out of this? So I love that sort of zoom out thinking and uh, doing a really great job of it. I want to take a second to talk about uh, how you got into your current role. What made you choose to become a scientist and how did you end up uh, where you are at Caltech? I would say my route into science started really early, you know, for as long as I could remember. I've always been fascinated by life. You know, as a kid, I was really into animals and nature documentaries. My friend and I even made and illustrated a book called The Crazy Zoo, where we imagined new types of animals. And for each one, we wrote down its evolutionary link to a real animal. So have things like Acrumbera, which was this fuzzy animal, and we'd say that it was related to mice. Or we had Dafaliku, which was related to a hammerhead shark. And so most of them were these really cool assemblages of different types of animal features, multiple heads, legs, fins, eye stalks, that kind of thing. And so I like to think of it as kind of a primordial early life bioengineering manifesto that I'm continually <laughs> working towards every day. <laughs> That is possibly the uh, coolest way I've heard a children's book described uh, today. <laughs> Even in high school, I would volunteer. Um, I volunteered at a snake venom research lab. And I also did things like apply to you know, science summer internships all over the country. And nobody made me do this. I just did it on my own because I wanted you know, experience. So I ended up at the University of Iowa learning how to clone bacteria. That's awesome. I mean, and that's... That's such an important point for people to, to make out. Is I think a lot of students get really hung up on, you know, am I doing the right thing? Am I going to work for the right person? And you know, should I? How many years should I spend as a postdoc? And the answer is, you know, there's probably practical, not uh, you know, uh, considerations for all of those. But like, you know, all other things being equal, so go do what you're passionate about. Because like, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if you if you're passionate about something and you're driven on your own uh, desire, uh, that'll get you a lot farther than you know, just doing what you're told. And it really sounds like you, you found that passion pretty early on. Totally. And, and you know, I would also say that it's actually, it's hard. 
you know, it's often hard to figure out what we're passionate about. Mm-hmm. And you know, even if you know that you're passionate about something, sometimes you can get led off track. And so one of the things that I say to students is try to keep track or write down reflections on you know, your day, your life, what you're working on, what's motivating you, um, the things that you enjoy, like what brings you joy in your life and set aside some time to reflect on that. And it, it's, it's not something that other people can do for you. But it's also not something that people, you know, encourage you to do. I think students don't get that. They don't hear the message that their interests matter. And I want to say like your interests matter, you know, spend time on it, really think about it, really feel it out. And I think that, you know, I think building that practice into your life will be so worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. So you're at Caltech. How did you end up uh, specifically uh, in this role? Like what uh, you said, you're uh, the director of an institute? Right, right. So I arrived in this role through way of a postdoc at uh, UCSF with Professor Matt Thompson, who was a fellow at UCSF at the time, and now he's a professor at Caltech. So he's mm-hmm. uh, very much my mentor, and we run the Single Cell Profiling Engineering Center together. And I started working with Matt. In early 2015 at uh, UCSF. And when we started working together, we were really interested in a lot of the same problems around stem cell differentiation, identifying factors that would allow us to precisely control stem cell differentiation. And we were really interested in using RNA seq, possibly at a single cell level, um, to study these processes. And that was at a time when single cell profiling had not yet arrived. So when I, the first month that I started working with him, we were, we were like pipetting single cells into tiny microfluidic chambers that I had generated with a hole punch, just trying to see if we could like get down to single, we were manually pipetting these cells and we were like, oh, maybe we can get RNA out of this. And we were just dreaming of the day that we could get 20,000 cells worth of data we're like, wouldn't it be amazing if we could get 20,000 cells? And it's so funny to think about how 20,000 cells was a pipe dream at that point, because now I feel like you can do it with your little finger. <laughs> no, I mean, and that's yet another really great lesson for students is that like, sometimes, you know, if the technology doesn't exist, you got to invent it and it's worth getting scrappy sometimes. You know, you make things with a hole punch, you, you know, find the tools that you have and, and, you know, bend them to the application you need. So that's that's something I, I resonate with quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's actually one of the most fun things about science is that it really forces you to be totally aware of like every facet of your, ex- of your experiment because things are always going to fail and you're going to have to figure out, you know, you're really going to have to turn on all your senses and really you know, break down every facet of your experiment and see where you can tweak it to, to make it better or make it work. Yeah. So Cece, you seem like a really thoughtful researcher to me. So I want to ask you a question that I wouldn't ask the faint of heart. How do you respond to failure in the lab? Like when things just don't work and you're having the string of experiments that just don't seem to line up with anything, like what's your process? That's a really good question. Um, I think that I've learned over the years to take a gentler approach. 
when I was younger, I would just beat my head against the same wall over and over and over again. And then you're like, wow, I'm really, you know, I've run out of energy. I'm demotivated. You know, I don't, that is not the right approach. Don't just do the same thing over and over and over again. I would do the same thing once just to make sure you didn't do it completely wrong the first time. But then I would take a step back, take care of yourself. You know, sometimes when things fail, it really sucks. So, like, you know, take some distance, relax, and then come back at it with a fresh set of eyes. And what I like to do is deconstruct every step of the process and, and write down ways in which it might fail and then go systematically through and try to fix um, different portions of it. Sometimes it's hard because if you have a really long protocol, you can't afford to systematically test every single piece. And so in in those situations, I really try to rank the possible causes and go after the most likely ones first. And I think you learn over time what's likely to be a problem and what's not. I think, you know, sometimes for instance, people will have their cells completely crap out. No survival of cells, even though this is a cell culture that should survive pretty well. That's not a case where you know your concentration of a growth factor was off by twofold, so your cells are going to die. That's probably a more fundamental issue, like the temperature is totally off. One time in the lab, we figured out that a technician had not shaken the media bottle. Um, and mm. so the top of the media bottle was de- devoid of nutrients. It was clear and everything had settled to the bottom. And so those are the kinds of things that can really um, cause your experiment to fail completely. So I think just getting a feel for um, what things are likely to generate complete failure versus partial failure. And when you finally figure out what it is that went wrong, like the person who didn't shake the media bottle, that first sigh of relief is something special, right? Mm -hmm. It's so good to figure out the reason (laughs) for something not working. (laughs) I think it's... The worst is when you have to move on and you didn't figure it out because it's always going to bug you and it might crop back up. Yeah. I mean, that's, I remember in grad school, we had, uh, we were making this one molecule that um, for some reasons, if the phase of the moon wasn't exactly right, it would be the slightly pale shade of green. And we, for years, we operated under that witchcraft where it was just like, if it's perfectly white, move on. If not, go back to the drawing board. And it took years to finally figure out that just like uh, when we bought one of the reagents from our university stockroom versus ordering it from the supplier, there was some sort of was like small variation in how they were acquiring that. Even though it was ultimately from the same uh, company, that slight differentiation, there was some impurity that no one could seem to track down. And so finally, we still don't know what it was, but we at least understand that that's the the knob to turn and it changed everything, you know? Um, and so I don't have full closure on that one, but I definitely understand what, what you're talking about there. Um, and you know, a lot of people in science now are playing around with, you know, they're talking about celebrating failure or like keeping a log of different failures and, and really bringing to light. And I love that idea um, because when you have a failed experiment, you know, and you share that information, it helps other people avoid those same issues. I mean, it's really just, you could be discovering something that is useful for the process later on. So I'm really in support of the hypothesis. 
Absolutely. And like when we think about like what goes on in journals, it's so easy for young scientists to think like, oh, these great scientists, everything always works. But like, it's because people don't publish what doesn't work, right? So that's why I've, I've seen people talking about um, putting more negative results in preprints because it's a little bit lower stakes. And I think that that's great because you can see the sort of like, you know, the, the provenance of the paper and see all those things that crop up, you know, in the bioarchive versions or whatever. And so I think that's probably really good for mental health of students. <laughs> well, we're running a little low on time here. And as much as I'd love to continue talking to you for another half hour, if I could, uh, I do want to wrap it up. And so I want to take a second and ask you, what is the best advice you have for students who want to embark on a career similar to yours? What advice would you give a younger version of yourself? You know, I think that I have a practical piece of advice and also a more personal piece that touches on what you had said earlier. So the practical piece of advice is that right now it really does feel like we're in an era where our ability to create data is very far ahead of our ability to understand it. And so um, we can collect mounds and mounds of data, whether that's through genome sequencing, single cell profiling, you know, high throughput imaging, or even as um, Atul Butte mentioned in his talk at SLAS, um, through electronic health records. So we have all this data, but we really want to figure out how to use that data and convert it into fundamental insights about biology, therapies, um, bioengineered products, new materials. So I really think that most of the exciting work is in trying to understand the data through data science, modeling, and converting those insights into tangible deliverables. And so, you know, if you can keep that long-term goal in mind, what product am I going to create? What result? What deliverable? I think that will serve you very well, even if you are creating new technologies. But if you can bring that technology to a product, I think that's really the long-term vision to, to keep in mind. I think the personal piece of advice is, like you had said earlier, to really pay attention um, to how you feel and what you're interested in and what brings you joy and is fulfilling. Um, and so I think that, you know, in science, we're really trained in looking for patterns, whether that's patterns in data or patterns in what's successful for other people. But I think if you spend too much time following other people's patterns, you can start to lose touch with what's personally interesting and motivating to you. And so I think this goes back to my point earlier, which is that you know, building a practice to you know, write down or think about you know, what you enjoy and what motivates you and you know, your own successes, I, I think that that will help guide you in your career. And you know, I personally believe that our own minds, our own brains are our most important scientific instruments. And to keep them calibrated, we need to engage in this process of self-reflection and celebrate our own successes. Oh, that's beautiful, Cece. Thank you so much. On behalf of SLAS, the New Matter podcast, our listeners, first, congratulations on the Innovation Award. It was so well-deserved, and we're so proud to be able to count you amongst our community. And a thank you again for your time. Um, really looking forward to uh, talking again when we can see... Uh, how far this uh, work has come. Thank you so much, Marshall. It was such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the award. <laughs>